Do you like to solve problems? Some of you, it's uh, your job day in and day out. For others, it might just be a hobby. Some of you may not even realize you do it, but I, I think personally, as those created in the image of God, we solve problems all the time. Maybe you like puzzles. Maybe it's math equations, an engineering question, sports or art, and you're just figuring out the right play or the right design, how to make something work. Uh, there's this thrill in having a challenge and then finding the solution and the problem is solved. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Well, Paul has been painstakingly laying out the problem of the human condition for a few chapters uh, as we've been studying the book of Romans. And it's a problem that's far worse than anything you and I account, encounter in trying to solve the issues of our lives. The problem that he's been laying out is the problem of the human condition. And it's worse than we often realize. We may look out there and see all kinds of evil, but then Paul turns and says that that same evil is actually dwelling inside of us, that we are doing the very same things we look and judge others for doing. And then last week we saw that it's not only that we do bad things, but it's that we're under the power of sin and there's nothing we can do about it. The problem, Paul says, in a word, is that we are unrighteous. We are unfit for life with and dwelling with a righteous God. And this is a problem that we can't solve. That's part of what he's been showing. And what's even worse is this isn't just a puzzle or a spreadsheet. <laughs> this is a life and death issue. This is the, a consequences for eternity situation. And what we've been building to in the last several weeks is this scene in the movie when all hope is lost. And so many movies have this, right? I try and avoid these ones because they're too intense for me. But um, the, the plan for success now lies in ruins and everything goes into slow motion, right? And um, things turn gray and the music is ominous and the hero is looking around and everything has failed, but enemies just keep coming and they keep coming. That's where Paul left us last week. But in our passage today, all of that changes. And it changes with two little words, but now. And in those words, Paul shows us how light breaks in and the overture begins to play. And we move from minor to major. We move from hopeless to rejoicing. And in one intricate but majestic sentence in our passage, Paul reveals that God has come up with the solution. The righteousness of God. God's saving action has been revealed. And his solution addresses every facet of the problem of the human condition. There's no trade-offs. There are no oversights. It's a solution of perfect salvation that God has come up with. And we get to consider that good news for several moments together this morning and consider what our response to it is. And so if you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 26. You can find it printed in your order of worship on page 9. 
If you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, it's on page 941. But let me read for us Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Hear God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pause and we ask for your help. As we consider your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to better know you and your love as we hear of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us faith to believe and respond in gratitude to this amazing salvation that you have revealed to us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to consider this great news um, under three points. The first is the way of God's righteousness. Secondly, we'll look at the work of God's righteousness. And finally, we'll consider our response to God's righteousness. So the way of God's righteousness, the work of God's righteousness, and our response to God's righteousness. So let's notice, first of all, the way of God's righteousness. As I've mentioned already, this passage begins with the words, but now, and it's showing this amazing shift. Something has changed. The righteousness of God, it says, has now been manifested, or it's been made visible. It's, it's entered into the time and space of history. And these words, the righteousness of God being revealed or being manifested, they may sound familiar to us, especially if we were hearing the book of Romans all in one setting. Paul said something very similar back in chapter 1, verse 16, and then he went on to unpack kind of the bad news. But he said, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so this phrase, righteousness of God, it's a really loaded phrase for us. Um, but I think it's helpful just to, to keep a shorthand of it. Of It means God's just character, his righteousness, that's then shown in his saving action to make all things right. What is the righteousness of God here as Paul speaks of it? It's God's saving action to put everything right that's been made wrong by sin. And Paul is saying that God's saving action now, his righteousness is being made visible it's being demonstrated, shown in the work of Jesus Christ. And there are three things in these opening verses here that we need to understand about how the righteousness of God or his saving action works. And so we'll examine how it works in, in three ways. The first thing he mentions is that God's righteousness is apart from the law. God's righteousness is apart from the law. One thing that Paul's continually doing here in, in Romans and then throughout his writings is he's demonstrating that there are two ways to be righteous. 
And when we hear that, it's not righteous of just like this holier-than-thou thing. It's righteous in the sense that you're fit for eternal life with God. You're fit for glory. There are two ways for that. One is by law, and one is by faith. And he's been unpacking in chapters 1, 2, and 3 the way of the law. And it's simply this. God has revealed what he requires for people created in his image to do. For the Jews, they had God's written law that told them specifically. And even Gentiles who don't have the scriptures, they have a sense of God's law written on their hearts. And what Paul says is, in order to be righteous, to gain glory, you have to keep that law perfectly. And as we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 20, he's been building to his conclusion, which is this. It says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Ryan explained it for us so well last week. The, The law is like a mirror, right? It comes to us and it shows us our sin, but it doesn't set us free from sin's power and it doesn't change our hearts. And therefore, for sinful people like us, the law doesn't lead to the righteousness that God requires. It shows us how unrighteous we are. And he says that again in our passage in verse 23. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, And we have not attained the glory that we were made for as the image bearers of God. The glory we were made for of perfect life with God forever. And so that and that verdict is the way of the law. Doing the works of the law perfectly to have life or to have righteousness. But Paul says that what's been revealed now is that God's righteousness is apart from the law. It's a different way of righteousness. And that's what we see secondly. God's righteousness is not only apart from the law, but God's righteousness is through faith. God's righteousness is through faith. You see that there in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, this is not the works of the law way. This is now the by faith way. And faith is not some work that we do. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that even our faith is a gift from God himself. But when we think of faith, biblically, it is trusting, leaning on, resting, open-handedly receiving what God has done for us. Verse 24 says that this way that's through faith is for all who believe, and they are justified by his grace as a gift. Those are amazing words. They're amazing words. By his grace tells us where this has come from. It isn't because anything or anything that we've done has somehow acted upon God to somehow constrain him to say, I guess I should grant them righteousness. By his grace means he has looked at our condition and he has said, I will freely pour this out upon them as a gift. 
Nothing we did forced his hand. It was only by his grace. And when it says that it is as a gift, or some of our Bibles may say freely by his grace, what it shows us is this. If something is truly free, if God's righteousness is free, it means that we have done nothing to earn it at all. It's not just you pay the tax, I'll cover the rest. You just cover the tip, I'll take care of it. No, it is completely free. And in verse 25, it says, God declaring us to be righteous is, here's where we see it put together, to be received by faith. It's this gift that comes to us and faith is just saying, I receive it and I have nothing to give you for it. And this is for anyone, for Jew who's pretty righteous overall and for Gentile who's doing wild and crazy things. Paul says, all have sinned, right? All are under the same verdict. And verse 22 says, this salvation is for all who believe. God's righteousness is through faith. Because the way of faith is not about what you have, whether you have the law, or it's not about what you've done because none of it measures up. The way of faith is about what you trust. And Paul's going to unpack what that is as we continue. We'll see how it works in a moment. But one more thing, just in these initial verses, to see about this way of God's righteousness. It's apart from the law, it's through faith, but it's also foretold in Scripture. You know, you could see especially some people who have grown up in the Jewish context there at the church at Rome, and they've been memorizing the law, and they've been really working to keep the law, and all of a sudden they're hearing about Paul talking about it this way, and maybe they don't like how he says it, but it's, what, what is this new and wild thing that Paul's talking about, this by-faith way? And you see, what Paul does is he makes it clear that even though this is different than the way of the law— it's not new, and it's not out of nowhere that this has come to be. Verse 21 says that the righteousness of God is now manifested. It's now visible apart from the law, which we saw, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All throughout the scriptures, and, and that's what Paul's referring to, the law and the prophets, these Old Testament writings, there are indicators all throughout of God's righteousness, his saving action to come. Think about the law, and when you think law, what comes to mind first? The sacrificial system. Trudging your way through Leviticus, right? Uh, when we think law, the entire sacrificial system was pointing to a righteousness that would be received by faith because we couldn't earn it. The prophets gave glimpses all throughout of how this would be revealed. And we heard that in our scripture reading, this coming suffering servant who would bear our transgressions, bear our iniquities for the people. And there's promises of another exodus and coming redemption and deliverance from exile. All of this was pointing to the saving work that God was going to do for them who in faith would believe in this work. And it was always from then until now, to be received by faith. And Paul's going to show more about how that works as we go on into chapter 4, and he's going to talk about how it worked for Abraham and just make those things more clear. But it's important to see this way of God's righteousness. It's apart from works of the law, and that's by faith. And that's really the good news of it.
we see this way of righteousness being foretold in shadowy form in the Old Testament. But when we come to the life and ministry of Jesus, we see this amazing example of how this works. You think of the crucifixion. Luke tells us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves, right? And one was mocking him. And the other says this, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. Do you understand how he sees the sentence of condemnation? But then he sees, but this man has done nothing wrong. There's someone different. There's a different way. And there on the cross, aware of his condemnation, but unable to do any good works because he is nailed to a cross, he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, apart from any works he had done, Jesus was his only hope. And Jesus responds to this faith by saying, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, this is the way of God's righteousness, a gracious gift of salvation that is received by faith when we see the condemnation we deserve and we look outside of ourselves to another way of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so this is the by faith way that's now manifest, but how does it work? And that's what Paul goes on to unpack in our second point, the work of God's righteousness, the work of God's righteousness. And what he does, I mean, these verses are amazing in terms of their succinct summary of the gospel, although they're just incredibly profound. But in summary form, he, he throws out three key words that are just loaded with imagery, with pictures for us of how God's salvation works. And so we're going to consider those three pictures today. The court's verdict, the captive's freedom, and the completed sacrifice. The court's verdict, the captive's freedom, the completed sacrifice, they all show the work of God's righteousness. And the first two we'll cover more briefly because Paul's going to unpack them more as we go, but we'll spend a little bit more time on the third. The first of all, for this sacrifice. How does it work in the propitiation accounts in these stories? Who's on the hook for it? It's the people, right? The humans are the ones who have to somehow provide the propitiation. They get a list from the gods, or maybe they're trying to figure out what satisfies the gods. Here's what will satisfy me so I can tolerate you. Please bring me this list on said day. But do you see how it works here? Verse 25 says, The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. With God's atoning sacrifice, he is the one who takes the initiative. He looks at our condition and he pities it in his grace. And he says, what could satisfy justice? I can put forward. I can give the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, in verse 26, it says that the Christ's work on the cross, it shows or it proves God's character. His righteousness being here referring to his rightness, his justice. 
he is both just and he is by his own initiative the one who justifies, declares righteous, the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. He's the initiator of this sacrifice. What kind of God is that? What kind of love is that? And that brings us to another thing to consider about this. You know, some might object. We can say, what kind of love is that? And you say, that doesn't sound loving at all. That sounds like divine child abuse. What kind of father says, cool, I'll pay for you people by putting forward my son? That sounds horrific. But the scriptures are clear that the father and son were not in disagreement about this. But as both part of the Godhead sharing the very same will toward it. The father was not unilaterally deciding to do this for sinful people, abusively putting forth his child. And Jesus wasn't coming and dying to try and appease some angry father for our sake that they weren't in agreement about. Scripture shows us that Jesus' work on the cross was initiated by the father's perfect love for two. His perfect love for his son and his perfect love for us. And it shows us that the son's willingness to come and shed his blood on the cross was out of love for two, out of love for his father and a desire to glorify him, and out of love for us to bring us to his father so we could enjoy his love. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, the delight of doing his father's will. No one took his life from him, not even his father's. He laid it down of his own accord so he could see his offspring, his brothers and sisters, who could come into the triune love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in fact, as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, we realize it's not just Father and Son doing this, but the Spirit saying, I will empower the God-man, the Lord Jesus. I will empower him throughout his entire life so that he can be that righteous sacrifice. And I will empower him and raise him up, and I will be poured out as his Spirit upon all who believe so that they can be united to Jesus Christ, brought into triune fellowship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This sacrifice was motivated by love. That's different from being put in a pot at the bottom of a volcano. I, wanna, I know it's been a bit, but I want to talk about one more aspect of propitiation here that Scripture shows us, that just, it's layer upon layer, right? With other deities, you come, you bring your sacrifice, here's all the grain for a year, you make your offering, and you go And the deity hopes you leave him alone, and you hope he leaves you alone. But what was the goal of God's propitiation? You know, what's interesting about this is this word, part of why people say, maybe that's not what it means, is this word propitiation. Most of the time when it's used, translating terms in the Old Testament, and the one other time it's used in the New Testament, you know what it's used to speak of? It's used to refer to a place where propitiation takes place. It's used to refer to the mercy seat. 
that word propitiation there, if we take that term and we're reading through our Old Testament, we're going to see, wait a minute, that keeps referring to a place. It keeps referring to that golden cover on the Ark of the Covenant that had two cherubim over it. And where was that? It was in the Holy of Holies. And what was it? It was the footstool of God's throne. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where heaven touched earth, where God's feet were to rest, metaphorically speaking, among his people. And when did anything happen with the mercy seat? One day a year, the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in, not just to the holy place, but he would go into the holy of holies, the most holy place. And what would he do there? He would offer blood. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And what did that blood signify? What did that blood show? It showed a covering for the sins of the people. And it said, in effect, I can dwell with you again. I can continue to be present among you. Earth can continue to be my footstool. I will continue to be your God with you all around me. And so when Paul calls Jesus the propitiation, part of what Paul is saying is that the mercy seat was pointing ahead to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that on the cross, we see where the justice of God and the mercy of God meet perfectly in Christ's perfect sacrifice. Why? So that sin can be dealt with and so God can say, I can dwell with you now. I have made you right. What an amazing thing. And it's not so we can come and leave something at the temple and go our own way. But the wonder of all wonders is this, that it's come to the mercy seat, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you become the temple. He comes to dwell in you by his spirit and pulls you into the triune life of God. Yes, always as a creature, always as a person created in his image, but enjoying the Shekinah glory presence that only the high priest could get one day a year. It's ours forever now. We have it in part, and one day we will have it fully. That's amazing, isn't it? We began by speaking of God's salvation as a problem to be solved. I think there are a lot of things about that that are true. But maybe what you're seeing as we talk about this is that there's also a danger to it. And part of the danger is this. It can be so impersonal that at the cross we just see God coming up with the right formula so that everything can be made okay and he can go his merry way knowing that he solved the biggest problem in history. But do you see how all of these images, a courtroom, a prisoner set free, and a perfect sacrifice, they all convey the personal love of God for us. A verdict, a rescue, a sacrifice, so we can be his people, and so he can be our God forever. And that brings us to our third and final point, our response to God's righteousness. What's your response to this good news? 
I have three questions. The first is, are you hardened by it? You know, we may hear news like this, and we may think it's so good that it means everyone will receive it, but that's not the case. Do you know that's why that's not the case? Because even though it's good, it's offensive. Because what it says is this, you need to be justified before God just as much as the worst person you can think of. That's offensive, but it's true. And if it's God's by faith way, and it's really freely, and if it's really all of grace, then you know what it says? You can do nothing to earn it. We're going to see next week, you can't boast about it at all. And this can be an offensive message. And people killed the Lord Jesus because this is what he's proclaimed. People sought to kill the Apostle Paul for declaring this good news. And the world is filled with people. And there are probably some among us in a room this size where we hear this message and say, I want nothing to do with that. I will do it my way with my works, and I will stand on my own merits. Will you leave your works of the law today at the foot of the cross and turn in faith to Jesus' perfect work for you? It's another way, and it's the way that truly saves. But for those of us who have embraced this good news, do we really believe it? I'm so convicted of this every time we speak of the gospel, which, Lord willing, is every Sunday. That's what we seek to do. Do we believe it in a way that sinks down to the depth of our being, that it reshapes how we view ourselves and how we view other people? When you're haunted by what you've done or in the sin that still wells up in your heart, do you open that file and do you see that verdict that says, declared righteous because of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Case closed. When it feels like sin's power is so strong, when it feels like the pull of your old ways is so relentless, do you see those empty chains, the redemption, the freedom you have because Christ paid the price so that you could be set free from sin's power And does it well up within you hope that one day you will be set free even from sin's presence? And when it seems like God is distant or God is against you, that he's somehow up on that mountain, that you somehow need to do more to appease him or you somehow need to do something to be close to him, do you see the blood splattered on that mercy seat? that in Jesus, the perfect sacrifice has made you now always welcome in the presence of God and indwelt by his very spirit. Not one day a year, but always. And one day we'll experience the fullness of that welcome. We, We will live it day in and day out. And so I have one more question. Are we hardened by it? Do we believe it? Are we humbled by it? 
what we're going to see as we go on in Romans is the church at Rome saw each other primarily through their differences. You have different preferences. You have different customs. You eat different things. You have a different background and past experience. You think about living the Christian life differently from me. But justification, Paul starts here on purpose because justification reorients us all to how much we're actually the same. Sinclair Ferguson just recently spoke about this at the seminary when he gave the Dendulk lectures. And he gave this, this vivid picture. He said, think of the person who has been a believer for the longest who's here today in the church. I'm not going to have a show of hands or anything like that, but the person who's been a believer the longest. And then picture the newest believer among us. The person who maybe today for the first time heard the gospel and said, I'm trusting Christ. Do you realize that those two people are still justified the exact same amount? That's how justification works. It's an all or nothing thing. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to grow in righteousness and sanctification. But this is the foundation of it all. To see ourselves and to see each other as who we really are. Fellow sinners who would all raise our hands and say we completely deserve God's wrath. But who have been declared righteous because of what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then we reach out toward one another in that sameness amidst our differences in a way that shows the beauty of his justifying work. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess our own weakness even in thinking about these things. <laughs> how much it is to grasp, how, how far beyond us it all is, how, how unworthy we are and how overwhelming your grace is as you just freely pour it out, as it just showers down upon us, as it throws us into the depths of an ocean of, of love and grace, and yet we so often think of it as so small. We pray that you would help us to more and more know and believe and understand these things, that it would shape how we view ourselves, how we view you, and how we view one another. We throw ourselves upon your mercy and grace, and we ask for help in Jesus' name. Amen.